specifically dealing with the Protestant Reformation or the history of the Reformation. The last time that we were together, we were looking at the second crisis in the life of Martin Luther. And if you recall, we found out that Martin experienced a, a crisis every five years or so in his life. It began in 1505 with what is known as the the lightning bolt experience in which Martin almost lost his life while he was almost (laughs) struck by lightning. And his reaction to almost being struck by lightning was to offer up his life in service to God as a monk. The second life changing crisis that uh, Martin Luther experienced happened in the year 1510. When Martin was chosen to make a pilgrimage to the holy city of Rome and upon arriving in Rome, Martin realized that the holy city of Rome was everything but holy. The place that he had dreamed of, of being such a sacred site turned out to be just as wretched and vile as Sodom and Gomorrah. You can turn to the next one there. Yeah. So if you don't see what I'm saying, then follow there. Hey, right. So when Martin was in in Rome, he witnessed a a lack of reverence for the mass. He witnessed rampant sexuality, sexual immorality that was happening not outside the church, but inside the church. Martin also witnessed the, the abuse of selling indulgences for the forgiveness of sins. And also Martin saw that the liturgy or the clergy there in Rome had no real passion for Christ. When Martin returned to Germany, he was then elected to serve as the professor of Bible at the the new university of Wittenberg. And he was selected or led by a man by the name of Frederick the Wise. The third, whoa, you're going too far. (laughs) The third life-changing experience happened when Martin Luther came to Wait, let me see where I'm at. Yeah. The third experience was in the year 1515. Martin Luther came to faith in Christ in the year 1515. He said it was then that he was born again by the Holy Ghost and that the doors of paradise swung open and that he walked right through. This was called the, the tower experience. And it happened when Martin Luther began to study the book of Romans, more specifically Romans chapter one. Let's turn there. Verse 16 and 17, Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is the the passage that he stumbled upon. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, this is the part that really opened up the eyes of Martin Luther for in it. That is the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was this passage that the Lord used to open Luther's eyes to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, meaning this, that one is declared innocent or righteous, not based upon their own deeds or acts of righteousness, but upon faith, faith in who? Faith in Christ, faith in the righteousness of another rather than in the righteousness of yourself. Just so that we can make this clear, 
And I'm sure that if you've been a part of this church or attending this church for any amount of time, you recognize that there is no righteous deed that you can do in and of yourself to be declared righteous by God in and of yourself. Is that clear? There's no amount of good deeds that you can do apart from Christ that will cause you to be declared innocent when you stand before God. It is only by trusting in the deeds and righteousness of Christ that you will be declared innocent by God when you stand before him one day. Amen. So it is essentially acknowledging your inability of being righteous. You are unable to be righteous on your own. Amen. And is also forfeiting, giving up every attempt to achieve your own self-righteousness. So any attempt on your own to achieve self-righteousness is also laid down and forfeited. And we trust in the righteousness of Christ. In that way, you are declared innocent by God and righteous by God. Amen. Luther was born again. Now, while this was happening in the heart of Martin Luther, something else was happening in Rome. Things that were of momentous Occasions or momentous importance were happening in Rome. Now, as we go through the rest of this teaching, I want you to really see the providence of God or how God has is in control of all of the things that we're going to talk about. And at the very end, let's look back and ask ourselves, was all of these things or were all of these things coincidental or was the hand of God obviously in the midst of all the things that were going on there in Rome? During this time period, there were two popes that were going to be in power, not at the same time, but at the same time period that we're talking about here. The two popes are recognized by Rome as two of the most corrupt popes in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. The first one was known as Julius II. We should be. Go ahead and go to the next. There he is. Julius II. He was known as the warrior pope. He was leading the Roman Catholic Church into land after land, conquering lands and killing people in the process so that he could acquire land for the Roman Catholic Church. He had a dream of building a great, big, new church in which he would have a great, big, new seat. He wanted a huge dome on this church. That would rival any structure in the mo- or in that world at that time. <clears throat> he wanted also to take the bones of Peter and Paul and bury them in the basement of this new grand church. It was to be called St. Peter's Basilica. It's the church that exists today there in Rome. We all are aware of that great cathedral or that great structure, at least. <clears throat> so he began work on this new project. And in the midst of building this new project, he dies. There's a new pope elected. His name is Pope Leo X. That's big pope right there. Pope Leo X. He took over. Now, when Leo took over the papacy, he had a problem. Leo X loved money. Leo X loved loved money so much that he spent all the money. He spent all of his money. All the previous pope's money, the previous pope's before him money, he was going into the treasury of the church and gaining all or getting all the money that he could so that he could spend it on his own indulgences. 
or spend it on the things that made him happy. As this was going on, the building of St. Peter's came to a halt. Why? Because they didn't have any more money. Why? Because Pope Leo spent all the money. So now in Germany, while this is all happening, there is a young prince by the name of Prince Albert of Brandenburg. Now, he's also going to play a big role in the Reformation. And let's talk about why. According to the Roman Catholic canon law, Prince Albert was too young to be a bishop. Now, if you remember, a bishop is essentially a pastor over a city, a leader over a city. You had to be a certain age to be a leader or a bishop over a certain city. Well, Prince Albert was not only the bishop over one city, but he broke another canon law in being the bishop over two cities. Now, how did he accomplish that? Money. Prince Albert was very wealthy. And any time a bishopric or a position of bishop came up for vacancy, Prince Albert bought it. It was that simple. Anytime there was a position open, you could buy it if you had enough money. That's all you had to do. <clears throat> it was also it was called simony. You could purchase bishoprics through simony. Simony was this. Again, it's the process in which people buy a church office. They would pay the pope or the people in leadership for that position. As long as there was enough money, the position was theirs. Why was it called simony? In the book of Acts, chapter eight, there was a magician named Simon. If you remember this, Simon attempted to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit when he saw Peter lay hands on new believers and they received the Holy Spirit. So Simon, in Acts chapter 8, goes to Peter and says, how much do you want for the power of the Holy Spirit? Peter says to him in Acts chapter 8, verse 20, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Simon repented. He was scared because he saw the power that was going on. But this became known as simony. And simony was rampant during the Middle Ages. As a matter of fact, it's one of the things that Luther also saw when he went to Rome. Prince Albert, the one who who was too young to be a bishop, the one who was bishop over two cities, he had a great ambition. His ambition was to be the most powerful clergyman in all of Germany, meaning this. He wanted to be bishop over all of Germany. So he was going to attempt to buy as many vacant bishoprics as he could. And by the providence of God, there was an archbishopric in Germany that was available in Mantis, Germany. That's a big dog position. If you're an archbishop, that means that you're you're the bishop over all the bishops in Germany. So this position becomes available. Albert knew that if he could get this position of archbishop, he would be the most powerful clergyman in all of Germany. So what does he do? He goes to Pope Leo and says, hey, I want this position of bishop. Now, what is what's going on with Pope Leo right now? He's broke. Right. So he looks at this guy who is willing to pay a lot of money for this position and says, "Okay, let's haggle. Let's let's negotiate. Right now, you give me twelve thousand gold ducats, which are twelve thousand gold coins. Give me twelve thousand gold coins. One for each of the twelve disciples. 
and this position is yours. Prince Albert came back and says, no, 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 no. Twelve thousand is too much. Let's do seven. One for each of the seven deadly sins. They eventually settled and said, no, let's do ten. Ten thousand gold ducats and the position of archbishop is yours. One for every one of the commandments. (laughs) Now, with 10,000 gold ducats, the Pope is able to get out of debt, get people off of his back, continue to build St. Peter's Basilica. And Albert, on the other hand, doesn't have 10,000 ducats. So what he does is he goes to the banks in Germany and says, I need you guys to loan me money. And because Prince Albert is Prince Albert, they do so. But check this out. Leo was not done taking advantage of this cow. He says, I've got a good one here. I'm going to keep milking this cow until I can get everything out of her or him. So this is what he does. He goes, Pope Leo goes to Albert and says, hey, Albert, I've got a proposition for you. I'd like you to be in charge of spreading this little something called indulgences throughout Germany. I'd like you to be in charge of selling the indulgences throughout all of Germany, wherever it is allowed. And here's the deal. If you or as much as you sell, I'll give you 50 percent and you give me the other 50 percent and we'll call it a deal. Which meant this money keeps on coming in. So Leo doesn't have to worry about, hey, 10,000 ducats, what's going to happen when they're gone? He knows that Albert is over there hustling on his behalf to keep the money going. Does this make sense? So Leo gets to spend the money however he wants. And Albert gets to pay back all of the banks that he owes in Germany. Albert says, that sounds like a win-win situation. I get to pay everybody back. And all I've got to do is send people out and sell indul- and to sell indulgences. Now, with their great money-making scheme and process, the, the Pope and Prince Albert... Both who were leaders, the leader in the the Roman Catholic Church and then one of his bishops, start to hustle the people. And they use a man, well, Prince Albert uses a man that we've heard of before, a Dominican monk by the name of Johann Tetzel. We've seen this man before. There he is in all of his glory. Go one one over. There he is, Johann Tetzel. We remember him. He came into all of the German towns and all of the German villages And he came in with a great parade. So they would walk in with this great parade. And the parade was of people that were sorrowful. So they would walk down the the streets of the villages. And they would essentially be like mourners. Now they weren't crying. But you can tell they were dressed in dark. They were dressed in mourning clothes. And they were sad. So in front of this parade was a big cross that contained the sign of the Pope. It also, they also had a papal bull that they carried in front of the cross that was that was on a, a gold embroidered cushion. So you've got the cushion, you've got the cross, you've got a, a procession of mourners. And then here comes Johann Tetzel. He steps in front of the people and he begins to preach. Can you hear the cries of your loved ones? They're crying out right now and they're suffering in purgatory. How long will they be there? How long will you let them suffer there? Must they go on one more day? If you purchase this indulgence today, you will be able to free your loved one. Can you hear the sound of your mommy? Can you hear your father crying out your name? 
If you repurchase this indulgence today, they will be set free from purgatory. Tetzel had the, the famous jingle that said, Every time a coin in the copper rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Many of the German people came from all over the country to listen and also to purchase indulgences. Now, one thing that we must understand is this. The Roman Catholic Church, their intention for indulgences essentially was, was good. Meaning this, they never intended for people to think they can simply write a check and get out of hell. Or write a check and get out of purgatory. The Roman Catholic Church taught that you have to be contrite. You have to do penance. You have to do good works. It's not simply write a check and that's it. These things must follow. But Tetzel was not teaching that way and the people were not receiving it that way. They were simply hearing a man say, write a check today and your, your loved ones will be set free. Martin began to see what was going on. And as he began to watch the way people were being taught about purgatory, that they could pay their way essentially out of, out of purgatory and pay for their own sins, Martin began to, to, to boil on the inside because this is not what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. This man is taking advantage of the people. Martin was infuriated. But listen to this. But not because of the selling of indulgences. He's not mad because of the indulgences. He's mad because the way in which people reasoned they could buy an indulgence and set themselves free or their loved one free. So it wasn't the indulgences that Martin was mad at. It was the way in which indulgences were being presented. Does that make sense? Martin saw that the people thought that they could buy their way out of purgatory without being contrite without giving alms, without having any kind of repentance, without having any kind of good deeds. And he believed that the reason for their lack of reverence was, again, due to this man, Johann Tetzel, manipulating people with his dramatic speeches. Martin believed that Tetzel was going overboard with regards to how the church properly taught indulgences. Martin believed that indulgences, Martin believed in indulgences, but he did not believe in indulgences the way that Tetzel was teaching them. So here's, here's where we go. Here's what happens now. In a state of anger, Martin returns to his study and he begins to write and he begins to write and he's, he's just pouring out all of these thoughts and all of these, these protests. And he ends up writing 95 of them. 95 protests, and he eventually said, they eventually be called the 95 Theses. And they are 95 protests against the power and efficacy of indulgences. Now, when we think about the 95 Theses, we think that's where, that's where Martin Luther went against the Catholic Church. He didn't necessarily go against the Catholic Church at this time. At this time, he's going against Johann Tetzel. For what? For selling indulgences in the way that he was teaching them. He was not going against the Roman Catholic Church or even the Pope. He's going against the, indulge, the selling of indulgences. And he's directing his anger toward Johann Tetzel. In the, the 95 Theses, Luther addresses simony. He addresses the abuses of clergy and a few other points. 
But it's important to note that in the 95 Theses, Luther says nothing about justification by faith alone, which becomes the firestorm of the Reformation later. But he, he mentions nothing about sola fide, the five solas. He mentions nothing about sola fide, sola gratia, solas Christus. He mentions nothing about these things. He's focusing on the abuse that's being uh, administered by the clergy. Martin was not protesting Rome. Again, he was protesting Tetzel. So, Martin writes these 95 theses. And when he does, he writes them in the language of scholars. That is the language of Latin. Go to the next page, please. And I can't read it, but that's what it says there in Latin. That's the title of his 95 theses. On October 31st, 1517, All Saints' Eve... Martin Luther walked down the streets of Wittenberg and it was about noon that he goes to the church door and he tacks on the church door. There he is there. He tacks on the church door, the 95 theses. Now, we think, wow, he went to that church and he he tacked it on the church doors. Let's go to a church and do the same thing. This was not an act of vandalism. The church doors were actually used as as bulletin boards for announcements. So you could go to the church doors and find out anything that was going on with the church because of the things that were tacked to the church doors. Luther just happens to have a poster size paper that he posts onto the church doors, which happens to be the 95 Theses. Within these theses, Martin also requests a meeting of the theologians in Wittenberg. And the purpose was he wanted to meet behind closed doors and he wanted to have a discussion about all of the things that he had written in his theses. Martin posted the theses, and in doing so, listen, when Martin posted the theses, he had no desire to start a reformation. That's so important. Not at this moment. Yes, it does begin it, but Martin Luther going to the, the, the church doors at Wittenberg, his intention was not, I'm going to start a reformation. Instead, his intention was, I'd like to have a small meeting with some of the theologians and let's discuss the way in which Johann Tetzel is taking advantage of the people. Does that make sense? Martin did not want to turn to turn the church upside down. Listen, Martin belonged to the church. He loved the church. He wanted to be the best church member. And yes, the pilgrimage in Rome in 1510, it shook him to the core But he was still committed to the church. He was still committed to the Pope. He was still committed to everything that was essentially taught in the Roman Catholic Church. He believed it was evil men, not the church, that was causing corruption in the church. So if we get the evil men out, the church itself is perfect. The church will be fine. He was committed to the Pope, though. He was committed to the church. He was committed to all of the things Roman Catholic. And... That was his plan to live that way all of his life. But God had a different plan. Martin came to the meeting that he called. He came to the meeting expecting the theologians of Wittenberg to come and to talk to him and to discuss with him the problems that they had with what he had written. He sits there and he waits and he waits and he waits and no one shows up. Not one person. Martin feels that maybe all of his concerns fell on deaf ears and that nobody cares. But while Martin was waiting, 
something else was happening. Some of the students there at the University of Wittenberg went to the castle doors or to the church doors and they saw the 95 Theses. Not only did they see it, but the students at Wittenberg could also read Latin. And they understood what Martin Luther was writing and they understood the concerns that Martin Luther had. They saw the significance of all the things that he had written in these theses. So they took the 95 theses and they translated them themselves into the German language. Not only that, but thanks to the recent invention of Johann Gutenberg's printing press, they made copies and they spread them all throughout Germany. Within two weeks, what Luther intended to, do, to be a behind-the-scenes closed-door meeting became a nation, German, nationwide firestorm. And everyone was in an uproar over all of the things that Luther had said in his 95 theses. Listen, he wanted it to be private. It turned out to be public. God was in control of this. <clears throat> so, Martin, in light of the firestorm that was happening, he does this. He sits down again and he calmly writes what's called the exposition of the 95 Theses, meaning this. Let me explain what I meant by these 95 Theses. Here's why. Because there was an uproar. Everyone was starting to hail Martin Luther as the one who was going to oppose Rome. But Martin was thinking to himself, I'm the last one that wants to oppose Rome. I never wanted to oppose Rome. Let me explain what I meant. Basically, he's trying to put out a fire that he started. So he went through every single one of the 95 protests and he begins to explain why he said what he said. Now, he didn't take back anything that he said, but he simply softened what he said by explaining it in a calmer way. He sent copies to Prince Albert. Why? Because Prince Albert is the archbishop, hoping that Prince Albert would hear the explanations, clear up all the misunderstandings, and they would leave Luther alone and he would be no longer seen as the leader of this new revolution. Now, while Martin was trying to put out the fire, Johann Tetzel was planning on pushing Martin into the fire that he started. Tetzel wrote his own arguments against Prince Albert and Martin's interference and explained Martin's interference with the selling of indulgences. Now, we know the importance of the indulgences, right? It's the moneymaker, is it not? It's getting Leo out of trouble. It's getting Albert out of trouble. It's causing Rome to have a whole bunch of money. And here is this guy, Martin, coming in and stopping the flow of money. Now, do they care about theology? No, they care about the money. They don't care about anything else. They care about the money. And here we have a man who's stopping our cash flow. Prince Albert reads Martin's explanation, but was not moved. All he read again was that this money's taking money out of my pocket and the Pope's pocket. So Prince Albert sends a copy of Martin's explanation or exposition of the 95 Theses. He sends it to the Pope. Leo, check this guy out. He's trying to mess with our money. Leo, Pope Leo responded, ah, this is just the work of a drunken German monk. He'll get over it in the morning. But Martin didn't get over it. And more and more people came to hail Martin 
and support his teachings against simony, against indulgences, against the abuses of the clergy. Tetzel said, "Okay, you guys think this man is so great. I'm going to write my own 95 theses. And so he sends it. (laughs) He sends it to the university students there at Wittenberg. They get the copy of Tetzel's 95 theses. They take it. They start a bonfire and they throw it in. Here's what we think about your 95 theses, Tetzel. Many of the church leaders began to say, this man, Martin, has to be silenced. He needs to be put on trial and charged with heresy because he's causing an uproar in the church. The Pope said, I agree. Prince Albert says, I agree. Let's bring him to Rome and let's kill him. Let's burn him at the stake. So they said, yes, you are coming to Rome. But there was only one problem. There was one man with more political power than Prince Albert. And there was one man who intimidated the Pope because he held electing power. His name was Frederick the Wise or Frederick the Elector of Saxony. You remember remember him from the last lesson? I said he's going to play a big part. Frederick says, "Uh, no, you don't. That's my boy. He works for me in my university. You don't lay a hand on him. Prince Albert backed down, Pope Leo backed down, Martin continued to preach as he did against the selling of indulgences. Martin simply wanted a platform. He wanted a place where he could explain or at least discuss his 95 theses, and he wanted to do it in a civil manner. He wanted to debate the issues. Within four years, between 1517 and 1521, Martin would have three opportunities to do so until we finally get to what is known as the Diet of Worms in 1521. We'll get there. So here's the first of the three opportunities. April, April 1518 in Heidelberg. This was the first meeting and it was a meeting between Augustinian monks, which Martin Luther was, and Dominican monks. The debate was going to be centered on philosophy and theology, but more specifically, a debate about nominalism and realism. Nominalism is a very philosophical term, and so is realism. They were going to debate these issues. Martin was asked to go and represent his university of Wittenberg. In that debate, Martin began to display how he was developing or understanding his own theology because of his time as Bible professor. He said this. We are making a distinction between a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. Here's where Martin, what Martin meant. Martin said the church has gotten caught up with their own self-exaltation. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, is all about praising themselves. The church is lifting up themselves and claiming that they can give gifts to anybody that they want as if it's their own power. They're glorifying themselves. He said that's no theology. Instead, he said, we need to return to the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ, because that is where we find the gospel. We don't find the gospel in a church that says, look at me, glorify me. We have all the power and says instead, he says, we gain the gospel by looking to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the power is at. That's the real message, not the message of the greatness of the church, the greatness of Christ. That's the message for the church. He said, it's only when we understand the cross that we will understand the purpose of 
true Christianity. And he's in He's debating these Augustinian monks and he's stealing the show. I mean, no one talked like him. No one reasoned like him. No one spoke like him. And they loved him. I mean, the, the people there loved him. As a matter of fact, there was a Dominican monk, a man from the opposing side who said concerning Martin Luther, he said, their wows or their words were not able to move him one inch. He said his sweetness in answering is remarkable. His patience and listening is incomparable. In his explanations, you would recognize the acumen of Paul, not SCOTUS. His answers are so brief, yet so wise and drawn from the scriptures. Easily, they easily made all of his hearers his admirers. This man was named Martin Butzer. And if you know anything about Martin Butzer, he eventually had a great influence on a Frenchman by the name of John Calvin. It's funny how God just connects these dots. Matter of fact, Martin Butzer spent the rest of the day having what's known as table talk with Martin Luther. If you know anything about um, R.C. Sproul's uh, magazine, it's called Table Talk. And it's in reference to the times that Martin Luther would sit with people at dinner tables. They said that just sitting with him at a dinner table or a lunch table, he would be preaching a theological message through conversation. After this meeting at Heidelberg, Tetzel would receive his doctorate. Then 12 months later, he would be disgraced for his abuse of indulgences. Soon after that, within a year, he would become very sick and die in 1519. Now, Luther was praised in Heidelberg for the great way that he displayed his knowledge and understanding of theology and his praise of Christ in Heidelberg. But there was quite a different story when he would go to his second meeting. Now, Rome was still after Martin. They wanted to silence this man, but Frederick the Wise stood in his way. So rather than bring Martin to Rome, Rome says, we'll come to you. They came in the person of their most able and formidable theologian, a man by the name of Car Cardinal Cajetan. Now, when he came to Germany, Martin was promised safe passage if he meets Cajetan in Augsburg. His friends began to beg him, don't go. We've seen this before. If you go, you're going to die. They're going to kill you. It's a setup. They're going to take you to Rome and they're going to burn you at the stake, just like they've done all of the others who've came before you, who've come before you. But this was Martin's. This is what Martin has been waiting for. He's been waiting for Rome to bring a representative so that he could have a debate and explain all of the reasons why he had posted that 95 theses. So he says, let's do it. Martin sets out and gets ready to meet this man in Augsburg. And when he gets there, he experiences more than he could have ever imagined. And we'll find out what that was next time we meet. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Thank you for this time. I pray that it was edifying. I pray that we learn. I pray, God, that we would understand and give you glory for the great stance that these men and women took before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now you have to go. I'm going to do that every single time.